You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 257. If the people we love are stolen from us, the way we have to live is to never stop loving them. Buildings burn, people die, but real love is forever. Sarah from The Crow. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from, who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar-winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Now, guys, I cannot be more excited to bring you today's episode Because on the show today, we have the legendary writer-director Alex Proyas, the filmmaker behind The Crow, Dark City, The Knowing, Gods of Egypt, and iRobot. Alex has had a huge influence on my filmmaking life. The Crow is one of those films that I watched thousands of times in the theater when I was in film school. The Crow is one of the first modern comic book adaptations that was outside, I think it was the first that was outside of a DC or Marvel film. But as Alex puts it, that The Crow was his anti-comic book movie. Now, both The Crow and his visually genre-defining film, Dark City, has influenced filmmakers for years. I mean, you can see a direct line from his genre-defining work to films like The Matrix, Alita Battle Angel, Equilibrium, Underworld, The Dark Knight, Inception, and many, many more. He's actually had conversations with Christopher Nolan where he's told him that Dark City and The Crow were really big inspirations for him when he was putting together the Dark Knight trilogy. I mean, if you look at The Matrix and then you watch Dark City, you can see the just the, that Dark City is oozing from so many frames of The Matrix. Now, in this conversation, Alex and I discuss his career working within the studio system, dealing with insane interference in his creative visions for his films, why he's shooting short films at this stage of his career, and his new film studio, The Heretic Foundation, as well as all his misadventures in Hollyweird. 
He's also launched a YouTube channel called Mystery Clock Cinema, where he showcases his new short films, amazing filmmaking tutorials, philosophies, and live streams. I want you to now prepare yourself to be inspired because after I talked to Alex, I swear to God, I just wanted to grab a camera and just start shooting again and experimenting again and, and just, just doing that thing. It, it, kinda, it just kind of reinvigorated that film student back in the 90s when I was in film school. So without any further ado, please enjoy my thoroughly entertaining conversation with filmmaker Alex Proyas. I'd like to welcome to the show Alex Proyas. How are you doing, Alex? Yeah, hi, Alex. Good, good, good to see you. Good to speak to you. Yes, it's been. Uh, I, I am. I'm honored that you come on the show. I'm a huge fan of of your work, and I know the tribe is going to be very excited to kind of dig into your your history, your films, your process. Um, you are easily one of the most visual uh, directors of your generation, without question. And I argue to say that a couple of your films specifically kind of changed the way films were shot afterwards because I, you could see the stylistically how things changed after the crow and after dark city, you just like, okay, <laughs> like the matrix picked up a couple of things from, 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 sure, the, yeah. from the crow and well, things well, like well, that. Thank you for saying, th- thank you for saying so. And, and it's a mutual admiration society because I very much appreciate what you're doing as well. I think it's awesome. In fact, I've been sort of scouring your, your website and I think it's a terrific, uh, initiative that you're taking. So well, well done to you too. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you very much, my friend. I appreciate it. So first and foremost, how did you get started in this insane business? You know, it's something I've always wanted to do. I started making films when I was a kid, like really, uh, 10 years old, old, I got my first super, I bugged the hell out of my parents. Uh, being an only child, they eventually succumbed to my to my wishes and bought me a Super 8 camera. I didn't buy me a projector. I had to save up for that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's how it all started. It's literally like, you know, my dad was a big film film goer. He loved, he loved films and take me to, to, like, totally inappropriate films for, for a young kid, you know, like um, – you know, I remember him taking me to 2001 A Space Odyssey when I was, a, when I was probably about six years old or something <laughs> like that. And uh, it completely, you know, fried my brain, you know. It was like it is, fried, you know. So many more things know, are – Throw people's it, brain. And, um, it, it makes so much more sense. Your whole career now makes so much more sense after that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So I mainlined, uh, you know, ex- Kubrick. big, bold, commercial, experimental filmmaking, the ultimate – trip you know at a, at a very young age um so you know obviously had no idea what, what the hell was going on as most people didn't anyway um but um you know from that moment i think i went you know i, I want to you know the, the whole experience the big screen the big sound and conceptually what was going on was just so amazing it was transporting me into outer space and so since then, I've always wanted to, you know, I think I started wanting to be an astronaut soon after that. And then I eventually, over a few years, evolved into going, well, I don't need to necessarily go there. I can create that sort of stuff, you know, and that's what I wanted wanted to do, you know. So, yeah, that was the, the whole instigation of it all, you know. And then you, and then you, your career started um, with music videos, correct? Yeah, well, I, I got into film school. Actually, you know, even before that, I was working at an, in an animation studio straight out. You know, I, I left high school early mm-hmm. and because uh, I knew what I wanted to do. And I went and worked at an animation studio for a while, you know, 
and because um, I was kind of an I was kind of good at animating as well, and um, and then got into film school, and then through film school we you know we came out of film school, me and other my colleagues at the time, and in Australia there was very little uh, potential for getting in, breaking into the film industry, particularly, particularly as a young a young person. It was really hard to do. You know, there's so so few opportunities, and still to this day in many ways because um, we don't have the studio system we have very limited you know commercial tv stations and stuff to work with so me and some friends uh set up this little company and by setting up a company i mean we rented an office and rented a phone and a couple of chairs and a desk and and would sit in there and play card games all day long waiting for the phone to ring and um you know, we had we had friends in bands. You know, we were all like the whole scene at the time was very music oriented, and so we started off doing a couple of you know music videos for for friends um, in bands, and um, and you know for for like nothing for the cost of the film stock or whatever, and um, and eventually you know record companies started paying attention, and I you know we got more and more into the music videos. You know, now what are some of the bad habits you picked up at film school? <laughs> Um, oh, numerous, numerous ones. Um, yeah, it's, uh, look, you know, it's, it's a whole new world. You know, when I went through film school, it was, it's, that's like ancient history now, you know, people these days, I think, you know, YouTube is, is people's film school. Um, and that can also teach you some very bad habits, I think as well. I hope you're not teaching anyone bad habits. I, I, I'm only teaching people how to survive, how to survive and thrive in the business, sir. I do not, I do not teach the latest camera gear. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not teaching the latest camera gear and things like that. That's not my bag. (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because it's a bit of a trap these days that you, um, you know, because you can shoot on your phone and, right. you know, cut on your, your your computer and stuff. And that's all great. It's fantastic. I mean, in my day, I had to save up, you know, my dollars oh. to buy a little cartridge of Super 8 film and wait for it to be processed in some other city and mailed <laughs> back to me and stuff, you know. Right. Um, and, and um, you know, these days with such accessibility to the technology that makes film – that's got its own fair share of, of, of traps as well. But in my day, I guess the bad habits that were taught to me, I mean, they were, they were numerous, you know, and it would, I was being taught by, you know, sort of at that time, you know, experienced industry professionals who weren't really working in the industry anymore. anymore. They, you know, started teaching and, and working as lecturers there. And, and I guess they were teaching a start, you know, the old school way of doing stuff. And, a lot of that was how to how to sort of conform to the film industry and how to find your niche in the film in the traditional old fashioned old school film film industry, you know. Right. And of course, in Australia, that usually meant you go and work for a TV station, you know, shooting news footage or something, you know, in, incredibly tedious like that, you know. Um, and you know, we were all you know we were young and wanting to take over the world, and we wanted to be directors. We wanted to make films, you know. So. You know, I sort of quickly broke broke away from that model. I still subscribe to that. You know, I still go, well, if you want to make a film, just make it. Don't wait for someone to sanction you or your budget or, or your story. You know, just get out there and do it. And so even in those days, that was my attitude, you know, even when there was no money and 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 you, know, you had to scrap enough footage to shoot anything, you know, Um 
so that, you know, that's, I guess that was, in a way, that's a good habit that was taught to me through bad habits in, mm-hmm. in, in film school, you know, um, and I think it still holds true to, to today, you know. So, so in the nineties, I mean, obviously there was a couple movies you made that really just changed, changed my world. One of them being the crow and the, you know, I was in film school when the crow came out, I, I was literally in film school. It was 94, right? When 94, when the crow came out, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. And I yeah. saw, I must've seen it in the theater a dozen times. I just kept going back every weekend and watching it again and again. And that amazing soundtrack <laughs> that was so so good that you know in many ways that was one of the not one of the first it actually was an early comic book adaption it was before hollywood became comic book happy it was after batman it was obviously after superman yeah. but it was i think the first that's right indie comic adapted correct i think i think so yeah yeah spawn was also around the same yeah. time but, right um I can't remember whether it came before us or after us. It was um, it was around there. Yeah, 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 it was about about the same, same and, time. But uh, you look. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I was going to say, like, how? First of all, how did you get involved with that that film? Because I mean, it was it wasn't definitely not a a um, a guarantee blockbuster by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I guess there was something in the story that caught your eye. Yeah, you know, look, I wasn't looking for a guaranteed blockbuster. I guess that was the <clears throat> part of the key. Um, I, I, um, I, I, I got an agent in Hollywood, and this is like, you know, the many years between making music videos with my friends in a in a one room office, and and this, of course. And through that interim, I'd, I'd made a lot of music videos, became very successful making music videos, some big acts, and also started doing a lot of commercials as well. And um, I got involved with a company called Propaganda Films in, in L.A. that um, mm-hmm. that got me out to L.A., uh, that, uh, you know, produced a bunch of very well-established directors now uh, whose names you would know. Um, and um, uh, I started making videos in, in, in L.A., and through that, I, you know, got an you know, agents at the time were very open to finding new talent from the fields of music video and commercials. And, and I, and I nabbed an agent, which was CAA, which is one of the powerful, very, probably the most powerful one at that time. And, um, you know, they started sending me out to producers and meeting producers and, and I got offers of, you know, films such as, and this is all on the on the strength of my commercials were, et cetera. I started getting offers of things like Nightmare on Elm Street number something, which I can't remember which number it was. I think it was five or four or something. <laughs> um, and it's not really what I wanted to do. I mean, I've always been, I've always had very specific, you know, desires and tastes of what I wanted to do. And I love genre, genre but I like a particular kind of genre. You know, and I'm not, I've never been a fan of franchise, plugging into franchises or, sequels or remakes or anything like that. I just, because for me, the fun of it is building that world, creating that world. That's what I get off on, you know, as we've cited 2001 A Space Odyssey transported me to another world. And so I've always, that's what I've always been hungry for, you know, creating that world is what's so, so basically godlike mm-hmm. and exciting in filmmaking. So plugging into someone's already existing world and characters and in, in situations, I, I just I just can't get excited about it, you know. Um, I, um, I like st- coming st- stuff out that comes out of my own imagination. So anyway, to cut a long story short, 
um, after I met all these producers, I spent like a month every day meeting producers where they producers would ask you this basic question, which is always impossible to ask. And I'm sure they're asking it to this day of young, young filmmakers. They say, well, what sort of movies do you want to make? You know, these are people who, you know, haven't seen any of your movies or haven't, don't, you haven't made any movies yet, you know? And of course my answer to that, as it still is to this day is, Good movies, right? I don't. I it's don't want to limit myself. It's a good answer. Anything other than that, you know, or excellent movies. That's what I want to make, you know, um, because I like all. I like all genres. I like all kinds of stories if they're good, you know. Um, so eventually, I after getting sick of ask, answering that question for about a month, I walked into uh, Ed Pressman's office, who was the producer of The Crow, and and he was refreshingly. Uh, unique. He's a pretty eccentric guy, and um, really stood out after seeing or meeting all these very, you know, kind of Hollywood cigar chomping type types. You know, whatever they were, <laughs> they weren't really cigar chomping, but that's kind of the way I. Oh no, I know exactly. I know exactly um, what you're talking about. Like that. Hey, kid. Yeah, yeah. All I need is a poster and a trailer, and I'll sell anything. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You met those guys too. I see. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, so, and he had this thing called The Crow. He gave me a script and he gave me the comic book and I didn't p- particularly care for the script. It was already a draft. Um, but I liked the comic. I thought the comic was really intriguing, intriguing and I really enjoyed the artwork and I loved the central concept and and because it was coming from a very unique, uh, original place, you know. And, um, I mean, I was in no uh, – you know, had no illusions about the fact that I was kind of reinterpreting the comic book genre, which it was already, as you, as you've pointed out, established through Tim Burton's, mainly through Tim Burton's Batman movies. They were the most recent mm-hmm. uh, offerings in that in that world up until that stage. So I went, well, this is kind of like Batman, but it's kind of like anti-Batman, right? It's it's um, you know, even to the point of what he's wearing, the costume he's wearing, that long black leather trench coat. I, I you know, Brandon up with this idea because I kept saying to him, this guy's got to, got to have something like a cape. You know, I want him to have something that moves around because it's going to be really cool in action scenes. If he's moving around, the cape's going to be great, but obviously we don't want a cape because that's not the character and we want a sort of like an urban version of that, a contemporary urban version of that. And we came, and we came up with a sort of like full leather trench coat, which became a, a sort of iconic part of that genre ever, you know, since that point on. Um, but that's where it came from, and it was kind of like reinterpreting some of the Batman stuff, you know, and just the the city, you know, it was like the city that it took place in was kind of like, you know, a, a sort of a Gotham city, a noirish kind of gothic, you know, gothic city, but it was kind of just completely fucked up and sort of falling apart, and just everything's broken down, nothing's working, and people set it on fire now and again, you know. <laughs> which again made it a for me a contemporary kind of concept, you know. So that was kind of it. It was trying to ground the comic book genre and bring it into a contemporary, uh, you know, milieu like a contemporary sort of feel, um, which was very much against the sort of like fantasy kind of over the top fantasy environments of of um, of something like that, you know. Um, and my reaction to that. And also, you know, like I guess Richard Donner's Superman and all those Superman movies, that had, which were very kind of light and frothy and kind of, you know, a, a little cheesy at times, you know. Um, so I wanted to very much work completely go against that. And even Tim's movies were very, uh, very, um, still had a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of 
we can only do comic books with tongue-in-cheek. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Kind of humour, you know. And, it, and, you know, I mean, Tim's not like this, but to a certain extent it makes you feel like the filmmakers are not taking the medium, the concept seriously, the medium seriously. So I wanted, I wanted my movie to be like, you know, serious, you know, I want to tell there's like drugs and stuff and, you know, things that, that are kind of scary and dangerous and real, real world, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, that was my response to what had gone, gone before. You know? Yeah. And, and, and when you, when you look at the crow, which still ages, it's, it's aged extremely well. I mean, extremely, extremely well that, you know, I think you were right. I don't think, the whole trench coat thing, which was so power, like it became a thing in so many sci-fi world building kind of films. I think Equilibrium, I think was one of them. And obviously the Matrix, there wasn't a movie before then that had these kind of trench coats in a sci-fi environment that I can remember. No, no. It was in a, this gothic we, we dark. Based it, we based it on um, Carlito's way, actually. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm a big 70s movie fan, right? And so actually we we were looking at, I've done that. I've, I also did that in iRobot with with Will's wardrobe in iRobot. We were looking at seventies movies and how they dressed the the characters in sort of like you know hard boiled crime type movies. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, Pacino in Carlito's way had a had a. It wasn't full length. I mean, we came up with the full length because it was the it was the cape thing. But we know I know for a fact that that didn't exist as an idea in science fiction or fantasy and and. Uh, and it sure did exist afterwards. Um, Matrix being the main one, um, but also um, you know Blade was also another one that had, yeah. uh, had that same. You know, every, everyone everyone was doing it so. afterwards. Yeah, afterwards it was. But but I think yeah. you, I think you were right. I think The Crow was the first, and you were the first really dark, because I mean Batman had a you know Batman one and and Returns had a dark you know comic book feel. But you're right that tongue in cheek was still there. But you were the first to really come up with a comic book adaptation that was dark. I mean, that's a dark film. Um, dark, dark, yeah. A dark hero. The hero. Yeah, Batman was dark, dark light. Yeah. Batman exactly. was dark light and the crow was dark, dark, you know, so. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think Nolan's, I think Nolan's Batman was much more in the, in the realm of the crow, meaning that is, is, is a, because, you know, Dark Knight, it's a fairly dark, you know, film yeah. as well. Oh yeah. Chris has been very influenced by, and Chris has told me he was been very influenced by both The Crow and and Dark City. You know, I mean, you know, the Batman, Chris's Batman movies, and it's partly because David Goyer, mm-hmm. who wasn't involved on The Crow, is, is, there's a weird convoluted rela- relationship there. Mm-hmm. David Goyer, who co-wrote Dark City with me, was involved with writing the Batman movies for Chris, and he was involved with writing The Crow too. Um, so he studied the crow, the original crow, in, in, in very intensely in order to write write the script for the crow, second crow movie. Um, and so, you know, I was very amused to see literally lines of dialogue pop up in the Batman movies, in Chris's Batman movies, the verbatim, you know, out of the original crow, not out of David's crow, out of <laughs> my crow, you know. Um, um, so that was quite. That's funny, really. And and um, and yeah, Chris is. You know, I I, we, I was working with Chris for a short. Well, I wasn't really working with him, but we were developing something together for a short time. They didn't they didn't work out. And um, 
mm-hmm. he was, you know, going on about how influential Dark City was in particular to to what he's what he's done over now, the years very now, successfully. Now, I, them much more successfully than my, myself. <laughs> Chris is doing okay. Chris is doing. He's doing. He's doing just fine. He's doing all right. He's doing all right. Yeah. Now, um, I remember buying the book, the white uh, art. I think it was the art of book or the movie book of the crow, and flipping through it, and there was this character in it that's not in the movie, which is the skull cowboy. Oh, yeah. You know, can you talk a little yeah. bit about what the legend of the, the the Skull Cowboy and why it never made it? Because I know you shot footage of it, so why never it made it to yeah, the final we shot, movie? Yeah, we shot him. My, Michael Berryman uh, went through an incredible, elaborate makeup to uh, to portray this character. Um, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, obviously due to the tragedy on the Crow, there was a lot of stuff we didn't get to shoot. Um, mm-hmm. And when we went back to Wilmington to finish the movie. Uh, we had I had to kind of rewrite and re restructure things to in order to shoot the linking stuff obviously without Brandon um, to make it work somehow without him you know um, and digital tech you know a lot's been made out of the digital technology that we use to to make it work but it was very early days for that stuff oh I, I remember mean, it was very li- yeah yeah very very little stuff you could do you get away with it I mean. You know, it really be- ended up being, you know, take Brandon out of one scene, you know, rotoscope him out and put him into another. That's really the extent of the digital, you know, expertise that we could could bring to bear, you know. Um, so, yeah, the Skull Cowboy partly, um, though we shot the scenes with with, with Brandon, uh, one, or I think one of the scenes, I think we, there was another one that we hadn't actually filmed. Um, we, we, it was just... Um, how can I put this? It just didn't seem to play in the story. In the in the, it seemed like the like the story worked fine without him, you know. Okay. Uh, and because he was used, he was used less than uh, than we originally intended, um, and he needed a lot of v, VFX work to help him uh, be more convincing than he was in the photography. Um, I just, you know, every time he'd pop up in the film when I was watching the edit, he it felt like another movie. It just felt like something that was not the grounded um, kind of storytelling that I was trying to achieve. And um, and so, yeah, I, I, we had to uh, excise him. And, you know, sadly, we, we tried. We just removed him and we looked at the edit and it seemed like the film didn't really suffer because his role was really kind of like, a, you know, an expositional one. Right. Um where he would appear and 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 tell Eric Draven the rules of what was to happen, and um, you know he there was a, the, the the important scene that I thought we couldn't live with is is um, the the moment when Eric go is about to walk into the church at the end of the movie to save um, uh, Sarah the the young girl, um, and the and the skull cowboy appeared on the steps and said, uh, you know if you work. For for the living, you know, you're here to work for the dead. If you work for the living, you will be vulnerable. You will lose your powers. But it seemed like, you know, the people started to, the audience felt that the crow itself was the source of Eric's power. And so when they shot the crow in the, in the church, it felt like that's, that was the moment when he lost his power. And then, you know, and it was such a, simple way of doing it rather than having a whole other character appear and 
tell us the rule book at that at that point in time you know sometimes it's uh sometimes it's difficult to let go of those babies that are that are beautiful on their own like the skull cowboy by itself as a character might be but it might not work in the whole in the whole story and that's where that's where the big boy pants come on and you got to go but that's got to go even though we love it exactly it's it's a hard call to make usually always is a hard call to make but you know you make it's that that story where you make you make a different movie one movie when you write it and you make another movie when you shoot it and you make another movie in, in edit in edit and you have to try you know uh, objectivity for a director is the most important thing and the and the tool that you lose most easily and most quickly as you get stressed and tired and and you know you struggle to make it all work through the production <clears throat> it's very hard to retain that objectivity but you've got to try and keep that because you need to be the audience as well as the filmmaker and you need to be able to step back and go you know is this really working um uh and if it's not as you say as you say it's it needs to be uh when in doubt cut it out you know so I mean, you actually worked after the crow um when when it was released it obviously was a fairly a fairly big hit uh, if I remember correctly, it did it did well at the box office. Obviously, spawned a few sequels as well. Um, you decided to do some shorts uh, right afterwards. Is it? Can you tell me a little bit about the series of shorts that you did afterwards? Yeah, the, it's a series called Book of Dreams, and I'm kind of still doing them all these years later <laughs> in a funny sort of way. Not calling them that anymore, but um, I like I like shorts. You know, I like I like um, I like the. Sh- a short form it's it's, it's like a, an author who make who writes novels it's great to write a short story now and again you know and get directly to this to the font of imagination we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show you know in in a, in a short that can exist in a short story you know um uh where you don't have to explain everything and you know it's just so I started making these films based on people's dreams, and they weren't really. They were, I was pretending they were based on <laughs> dreams. They were just something I was coming up with, you know. But it, the, the the format is always someone who describes their dream on camera, and you then you see it acted out. And you can a lot of them are kind of humorous, and you can kind of respond to what they're saying in a kind of visual, oddly, you know, contradictory way visually. Um, but they were fun, and you know, we we. We may, I've made three of them that were called that up up to date, and they became increasingly more expensive until I found myself on <laughs> on the set of a ten minute black and white science fiction nineteen fifty science science fiction homage, which was costing me three hundred thousand dollars of my own money, right? <laughs> and that's when I went, you know, this is just incredibly stupid what I'm doing. You know, I've really got to get other people to pay for this stuff. You know, but look, it was uh, it, it was. It was, you know, they were great fun to do, and it was a, you know, a part of my my um, kind of, uh, you know, recovering from the horrific experience of the crow and seeing a, sure. friend, a friend die. Yeah. Um, so it was a it was a, a way to reignite my love for being on the set and making films. You know, so it was. It, I think it paid for itself. You know. Yeah, and. and- and there's, I mean, it, when you're saying that, you're like, and then I find myself on a, on a set for $300,000. It's like, it comes to me like I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> because you're mad, because we're all mad. If you're a filmmaker, there's a spark There's a spark of madness that there's no logic to. And it's so refreshing to hear that even directors like yourself 
still have this madness in them. It hasn't been. No. <laughs> we wouldn't be doing. I mean, we are eternally ch naive children, right? <laughs> and it's we have to be to do what we do. Um, and you never grow up. If you grow up, you'd probably stop doing because it's a mugs game from a from a financial point of view. I mean, that's the only thing that explains things like Francis Francis Coppola making a now. There is no other explanation for right. why someone would uh, a filmmaker would put them th themselves through that with their own financing and under such arduous circumstances, except for this absolute unexplainable, inexplicable love for this thing that we do, you know. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, most of us are, uh, you know, uh, 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 dumber than we, than we, <laughs> than the marketing, know, than, than the marketing, than the marketing, than yeah. the marketing or the branding, <laughs> sir. It was so funny because I just had, exactly. um, I just had James uh, V. Hard on uh, who wrote Dracula. And um, I was talking to him about, and Coppola called up one night to James and said, James, I hate you. I hate the script. I hate the movie. I hate the <laughs> actors. I hate you even more because you you wrote this damn thing and got me involved in this. Come out here and see this rough cut. It is garbage. <laughs> and I'm like, and when and he, and he goes on to the deeper story, but the, the genius of that is, is that if Francis for Coppola is having issues with a cut, <laughs> that that yeah. at that stage in his career, what hope is there for any of us at that point? Like we no, all there is we, no hope. No matter who, yeah, how no, big it, you, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's but you, look, you know, and and that's also to do with the fact that we, you know, it's a, well, the reason it's such a wonderful medium is because you're always learning. You never stop learning. Uh, every film you make doesn't matter how many movies you make. You make, you're going to keep learning, getting better and better at it, and, right. and stuff. It doesn't mean the films will always be better, but it because there's so many unknowables that go into making a movie. But certainly your craft as a director becomes better and your ability to to kind of navigate the whole process becomes improved, you know. Um, but um, I think that's the thing is like you just, you know, you're always going to doubt yourself. That's why it's so destructive when you end up with a studio that's doing all, doing all the doubting you know, which might be a good segue to go into iRobot. I don't know. Um, well, no, because I want to wanna... do anyways. Filmmakers – yeah, I wanted to. I want to touch on. Dark, yeah, I wanted to touch on Dark City before we get to iRobot. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Because, because, uh, yeah, you forgot about that little movie called Dark City. Yeah, that's um, right. yeah. Dark City was one of those films that has become a cult classic because I remember when it came out. It, if I remember correctly, you please remind me. It, it wasn't definitely wasn't a, a, a runaway hit, um, but it was. Oh no, not at all. Not at all, right? It'd be, like people didn't know what to no. do with it. Like you know, no. and, and it, it was well beyond its its day heyday. It yeah. it is so visual yeah. and so beautifully crafted, and up to that point, I mean, I can't remember other than maybe the crow of something being so viscerally visual in its storytelling tech. I mean, I mean, you look at Dark mm -hmm. City. There is a direct line to the Matrix. Like, there's like, I'm not saying that they took anything, but I'm just saying that there is definitely inspiration picked up from dark city. I mean, you could just, oh, yeah. you could just Absolutely. see the, th you could see the through line so clearly. Yeah. And you, and you, yeah. and, and, you know, and that was done, that was new line. So that was Warner's um, at the time. And, you know, how does like a movie like that obviously would never get greenlit today that, you know, the crow would have a tough time no, getting it, greenlit today. Oh yeah. The crow would have a slightly easier time because it's based on something. IP. Right. right. Um, an, an original like that, um, 
it would be really hard to make, you know, um, very, very hard to make. What was the budget, uh, by the way? What was the budget of Dark City, if you mind me asking? It was like $25 million or something at the time, which was right. even at the time was, was not much, you know. <clears throat> it should have been probably at least $75 million for, for what we were trying to do in the film. Um, I remember just the visual effects budget itself was $1 million, which sounds like an Austin Powers movie. Is that, is that all it um, was? It was only $1 million? That was it. A million, a million dollars was the entire budget, the VFX kidding? budget, you know, because we built a lot of it too, a lot right. of the sets and stuff and barely managed to, well, we, you know, we 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 shot um we shot as much as we could and we basically had to they shut us down because we didn't we just ran out of days um and they had to give us an an extra some extra money like another million bucks something to get to bring the actors back and finish it you know i remember they basically new line basically said that's it you know i was saying but i'm not done and they go well show us the cut come over and show us the cut and we'll decide whether you're done or not you know and i showed it to them and they said well it doesn't make any sense. It's bits of it are missing. I go, well, there's a reason for that. You know? We're not done. Um, so anyway, <laughs> they eventually gave me some more money to, to finish the, the bits that were missing. And, um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it was a, it was a low, it was a low budget movie. There's no question. It was, it was harder. What we were doing in that for roughly double the budget of the crow, but w- what we were trying to do was actually, um, much, much, much harder than that. You know? um, yeah, I mean, look, so. I, mean, I remember well, you, you you built a lot of the you, – you did a lot of modeling in The Crow, if I remember correctly too, right? You did models yeah. of the city yeah. and, that, and that's why that, that has such an – because that was all pre-CG worlds. Um, really, I think Jurassic Park had just hit. So yeah, exactly. that whole world, is it was just starting to come up. So yeah. you did a lot of practice and I know you did a lot of practicals on, on um, Dark City as well. You know, yeah. anyone listening who has not seen Dark City, do yourself a favor and watch it because it you'll see it and go, oh, my God, there's so many movies I've taken from this. It's kind of like you watch The Matrix and they're like, oh, everyone's stolen from The Matrix. Like, oh, it's, it seems passe, but The Matrix was leading one of those one of those films that kind of just, you know, blew the doors open on a lot of stuff. And so many people just took it and took it. And took, I mean, bullet time. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you know, the matrix didn't invent bullet time. Bullet time was invented on commercials. Right. Um, on the gap. And uh, just to take a little bit away from the matrix for a moment. And, and <laughs> they I have was enough. Saying, they uh, have enough. <laughs> where I went terribly wrong in, uh, in dark cities, I should have had some more Kung Fu in it. I think I would have been probably more successful. If you would have had uh, more Kung Fu. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, it's all, it's all related. Um, yeah, no, Dark City was definitely an influence, though, as you, as you rightly pointed out, it was a you know disaster at the box office. It was partly a disaster because it took us um, – they kept putting it off, the release. Originally, it was to be released maybe a year before it came out, and they went um, – they said, oh, there's this film called The Titanic coming out, uh, and it looks like it's going to be – it's going to do okay, so let's – I think originally we are going to open on the weekend, the opening weekend of The Titanic – you know, and then we let's put it off a couple of months, right? And then a Titanic came out, and of course we know about the Titanic, and and it kept building and getting bigger and bigger and building, and they kept saying, "Oh, we'll put it off another couple of months again," you know, and eventually it ended up being like, as I say, I think it was eight or nine months later than the original release. Oh wow! When the film was eventually released, you know, because they were just staying away from the Titanic, they had no idea how long they'd have to wait to stay away from the Titanic, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of amusing. 
Um, but it's also the film was not um, it was not really promoted very well um, because the studio themselves didn't really get it. You know, um, sure. no one got it. No one got the film. Um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, um, you know, it was uh, the, even like the trailer that came out was like a – I think it was a good trailer. I liked the trailer. Um, it was done, very creatively done. But it was didn't really tell you anything about the story. Mm-hmm. It was just a bunch of images, you know, and, and so pe- people were, were kind of – you know, if you don't tell them something about a story, it doesn't matter how pretty the image – the pictures are, they're just not going to go and see it. Can you, can you remind me – there's a, there's a French director – who who did a movie and it reminds me a lot of Dark City. Um, he eventually did the an alien. He did Alien Resurrection. They brought him over to uh, do Children. Is it? Oh yeah, yeah. What's his name? Yeah, that's um. Uh, yeah. Um, what was the movie? I'm blanking the, the, on his name, but but the movie Children it was of, called City of Lost Children. Si, si, that was City, it, City of, of the Lost Children. Oh, so oh, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful film. Absolutely gorgeous imagery. Um, uh, you know, uh, and and you know. Can, Came for Dark City, but Dark City was really conceptually very different. Oh, completely. That film. You know, there's some visual similarities, um, but um, but um, yeah, I mean, we, we I was my film was more about we were kind of riffing on Metropolis, Fritz mm-hmm. Lang's Metropolis. Oh, without and, question. And, uh, and Akira, mm-hmm. Akira too, to a certain extent. Um, the, the, um, so you know, that's kind of more my, my would you ever would in- would you ever make Akira if they offered it to you? I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, I love Akira. I love I love the comic and I love the the movie. Um, uh, but I'm not a huge fan of remaking stuff because uh, I kind of go well. I mean, it's been done. It's been done. It's been done really well. And so why is why would a Hollywood version, particularly in our current climate, do sure. it better? I just don't, I don't. I don't think it's possible. You know. I mean, look at what happened what happened to ghost in the shell you know that's a, oh. that's a classic example yeah um you, you just can't you know this stuff can't be done uh can't be overly refined if to, to put it nicely mm-hmm. um overly developed you you have to go with the raw ingredients that you you've got to work with um and there's i don't think there's anyone in hollywood now who would finance such a version of any of this stuff you know um i just don't think it's possible so after dark city you know which is obviously did not do well at the box office for the, the reasons we spoke about but yet still very well respected for the craft and 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 the film i, I know i mean and you please tell me if i'm wrong i know a lot of other filmmakers respect it and, and were influenced by it uh how did the town treat you after uh, you know having a you know essentially a box office disappointment, and how long did it take you to get out of that? Because I, I always am fascinated with you hear these stories of directors who get gotten out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've made a few movies since then, so I'm, obviously someone gave you. I have you, made a few. Yeah, <laughs> you've made I a couple. Like made more. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but does <laughs> I mean? It, just out of curiosity, like how does how does the town treat you? Because I mean, I, I know after a big hit they treat you one way, and and after a, a disappointment they treat you another way. I'm just curious, and then I know obviously it's a different time period too. I was in the '90s, but just curious. Yeah, a different mentality uh, where people were willing to take chances, but only to a certain extent, you know. Um, and the only reason they took a chance on Dark City is because right. the Crow had been so successful. That's really how it works, you know. 
much. You know, you make one hit and theoretically you get the license to do something that pushes the envelope a little bit. Though I'd argue these days that's less and less likely um, because these days Hollywood have determined that original fantasy and science fiction just doesn't work commercially speaking. And sadly, to a certain extent, when it comes to big budgets and the cinema release, the big screen release, they are probably right, you know. Um, it's sad that we're in that place, and, and it's sad that I think the superhero movies have put us in that place um, with the audiences, but there you go. That's, that's, it is what it is, you know. Um, so, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, um, I, was, uh, I was courted after The Crow, and everyone was called, all the studios were calling me saying, you know, we'll make anything that you want. And I had this thing, I already written Dark City, I'd written actually written Dark City before The Crow, and I said, here's this script and this is what I want to do. And they, then they usually say, well, what else do you want to do, you know? Um, so I eventually found people who, and we went through quite a development process through various studios, you know, Disney were on board at one stage and, and uh, believe it or not, and um, and then uh, we ended up in, New, I think we, we ended up in New Line and... Um, and, you know, they were like, it was all about the casting and, and Mike DeLuca and Bob Shea at New Line were like, we don't care what the casting is. You can have whoever you like as long as you support them with some some names, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I got got to cast Rufus Sewell, which was terrific because that's who I wanted to be in the film. Um, and, yeah, and then after the, after the film, of course, being such a disappointment, um, the um you know it was very hard to to make the next one you know so i went back to sydney and uh made this film called garage days a very low budget aussie aussie movie um i've got to say though that the the dark city um um has built it a, a huge following over the over the years i mean mm-hmm. it's often to rival the crow as well um mm-hmm. and it's it's you know the the increasing rate of offers to do sequels or a T, you know, the big one is right now because cinema is such in such a poor state is to do a TV version of um, like a series version of dark city, which I've turned down several over the years, but more and more I'm thinking maybe that's a good idea, you know? Um, So that's, that's quite a turnaround from, uh, from a film that did bad, bad box office. It's quite a, it's, it's a, it's a great thing about. It. I mean, look, I have, you know, um, physical media to thank for that, as we all do, um, which allows a film to have a shelf life. It's not about. It's not just about its opening weekend. And if you make particular kinds of of films that are challenging, that are not not the sort of the norm, the sort of slam dunk, uh, then physical media has traditionally been a great support of that kind of long process Mm -hmm. of success process you know and dark city is a classic example of that you know so many people people over the years discover more people discover it you know and and, um it builds its its uh its fan base well i am i'm i'll be first in line to see the dark city series so let us know when it's available (laughs) because and i and i think and i think honestly a series for and if I may be so bold to say a series in, with with someone in your in your hands, you might have the budget and the freedom, especially with certain streaming services, to do what you want to do with hopefully not as much interference. Because I feel that, and we'll get into iRobot in a second, which kind of leads into that. I always I've always felt since since I've I, I started following your work is that like 
you are obviously a very unique uh, filmmaker. You have a very specific vision, you, the specific stories you like to tell. But a lot of times they just don't leave you alone. And and because of that, but they just don't leave you alone. Like, you know, yeah. like Tim, like Tim, I, you know, I, you know, I, I equate someone like Tim Burton who has a very unique style. That's very him. And, you know, he, he built up a lot of credibility after Beetlejuice and then Batman. And then, you know, then he started to be able to do his thing and they left him alone for the most part. Um, but you never got like, really left alone. Like I would love to see you with a $200 million film where they walk away with an original concept and you just go, just let the man do what I'd he like does. I'd like to see me with that. I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to see me with that too. Just, just FYI. Just for, just for clarity of anyone's listening with 200 yeah, yeah. million hot yeah. in their pocket, Alex would love. Um, <laughs> but that, but I always felt that I'm like, my God. Thank you for putting that. Thank you for putting that message out. Too. I'm putting it out there. Anyone? To, you'll take 175. Yeah. I think. I think we can work with 175. That's fine too. That's <laughs> a, hell, I would take a lot less if they let me, if they left me alone. I take way less than that. You know. So. And but you're one of those artists, one of those filmmakers that that you just need to tell your story and and trust that you're going to go where you are. And with the crow, did you have a fair a fair good amount of creative control over that? Yeah, I mean, look, I was I've been I was very lucky to a certain point, which is why I was so blindsided when I did iRobot. <laughs> Right, is, we'll they that. left me alone on they left me alone on, on everything and you know this came out of a career of of commercials commercials where I'd achieved success in advertising and music videos where they also left me alone so hell I just thought that's what a director got you know I thought they just give you this film and sometimes they don't give you a good enough budget but they creatively they just they just bugger off and let you do your thing you know and and I'd made four features um no yes four yes, uh, yeah four I'd made four features under those auspices and, and before I'd made iRobot. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so suddenly I was in, but suddenly I was in with the big boys, right? Suddenly I had a huge budget, um, which big is movie a, star. definitely a double It's definitely a double-edged sword. You know, I mean, you get all these great toys to play with and stuff, but but then, the, then I, you know, and I also had the misfortune, I think, of working with one of the worst um, studio regimes at the time um, in terms of micromanagement, right? Um, and so, so suddenly I had the studio, multiple people from the studio breathing down my neck at every stage. And actually, the weirdest thing is they cost the production money because I want to move ahead with a certain thing, like building a car, for example, for the hero to drive in. Um, we were designing and, you know, wanting to build a car and they're basically just holding us back to the point where it just became so expensive and actually became impossible. And then we had to go elsewhere to get this car made in time, you know, um, just stuff like that. And I just found that just utterly infuriating that I was having to challenge. I was being constantly challenged creatively and having to constantly challenge the studio into, on a, on a, budgetary level actually to save the film money you know which i just thought was just absolutely insane you know because i'm a very responsible guy i'm a i'm a working class guy i grew up in a pretty poor situation and you know um and working class in australia means kind of you know poverty line almost you know so i'm i'm not uh, I, I take money very seriously i don't waste it um and i like to make sure that it all ends up on the screen whatever amount of money i've got you know so 
having a studio that were taking these stupid decisions that would cost the production money. I just got, you know, I, just, I saw it as a personal affront. I'm going, well, this is more money that my movie has to make for these these guys in order to be proved a success, you know. But yeah, it was a whole different world, and and uh, it was it was not a definitely not a good experience on any on any level. So I warn people that it's a that it's a you know it's a it is a dangerous double edged sword. It's it's a it, it's a very ego gratifying. You have all the big toys, but you get uh, your hands get get. I, I described it as a you're running a marathon, which is what you do on a on on any movie, big or small budget. But in this case. The, the marathon is all the studio execs line up on either side of the, the road and they throw chairs under you as you're running. Wow. Um, that's kind of the additional part of a, of a big budget, big budget movie, you know? Um, and because it is about, you know, you're, you're right. I have a specific vision and a specific way of doing things and that's what I like to do. And I like to make movies that couldn't be done by anyone other than me. Me, you know, and it's not ego because I just happen to see things in a certain way, and I want to do things that feel unique, you know. Um, so often I'll I'll I'll, av- I'll avoid a particular storyline or a plot or a this or a that or a visual because I've seen it done by other people, and I'll try and try and do it in a, in a different, way, a unique way. So it's an experimental, it's sort of an experimental approach, but it's it gets more refined as I go as I know more through the years but I I that that to me is kind of what I bring to the to this to the show so when they're second second guessing me and telling me to do my job um I feel like well why am I even here you know what what is it a why do you want me to do it surely you you want someone who's more uh bendable to your will as a studio executive you know who will give you exactly what others can give you or exactly what you want want you know which is even more funding concept because often they don't know what they want you know <laughs> um and that's part, partly why i haven't done a lot of you know after i robot i didn't do a lot of uh, i haven't done any big big uh, hollywood uh, studio movies you know i've gods of egypt was a big budget movie but it was um some um, a huge indie movie you know that's the way they put the financing together um uh, but again, even that was, you know, from a, a creative point of view, was really arduous because, and it became clear to me that beyond a certain budget is not a playground that I should be playing in, really, because it's an absolute uh, kind of correlation between how high the budget is and how much fear that the that the studio executives have, and right. fear is not a good way to create. It's re- it really isn't, you know. Uh, you don't want fear. You've got to be fearless in the way you create. The best, the best acting comes out of fearlessness, out of being brave, and doing and, and going where you feel creatively is necessary. And it's the same with with a director, with a filmmaker. Is you've got to be brave, you know. Um, and you can't be brave when every every other fucker on the boat around you is like, we're 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 going to drown, you know. We're, um you you can't you know eventually your 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 bravery gets gets whittled down if you're the only guy saying you know no we will we'll make it we're we're going to be okay guys we're going to make it you know um so anyway that's uh so it's so it's that's so as, that's as I you know <laughs> so i mean you were working with one of the biggest movie stars of the world at the time will smith uh as well and was it was it fun working with with will 
Yeah, Will, Will's a Will's an absolute wonderful person, and um, and we had a great time, you know. And and honestly, if Will hadn't been on that film, um, uh, and I'd had someone, who, someone who was less enjoyable to be making a film with, I may have actually actually walked off that film. Um, that's how far they they pushed me during oh, really? the production. Um, yeah, but but I, but Will Will made you know would often make my day, and to the point where he'd make me laugh so much sometimes I'd have to say. Just please stop, Will. Stop, Will, because I can't focus on the on the you know video screen. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, he's 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 terrific. You know. Yeah, and you in um, I, f- I forgot the actor who played the robot. Um, oh God, what was his name? Um, he was in oh, Alan, my, Alan Tudyk. Oh my God, what an amazing performance! I think that was the first time people were starting to have a conversation about letting like nominating actors um, for their performances. Yeah, yeah, he's, he, Alan's great. You know, yeah, he um. He and he's and he's uh he's done a few other robots I think since. Uh, <laughs> no, he's yeah he's he's, he's turned up as an some mocap robot for something. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's but, done some uh, mocap. Yeah, look, this was very early days. I mean, Gollum had been had been I think had been around for one one movie, mm-hmm. um, early Gollum. Um, but it was again it was also early days for this kind of um, you know uh, performance capture technology and and. Uh, uh, it was kind of a, I have an amusing story story to tell about Alan. Uh, we were um, this is after the shoot. We were um, working out of digital domain that's in in uh, in Venice in uh, in Los Angeles, and and I I'd be working with them as they're animating Alan's character Sonny, and I would go for a walk down at the beach occasionally just to get some some fresh air and get out of a dark room, which is what you <laughs> spend your life in, you know. And I bumped in, I bump into Alan, and Alan turns out Alan lives down there, you know, and uh, and um, I go, hey, come come and have a look at what we're doing, you know, come and have a look at this incredible footage that we're making with your your character, and and he was really excited. He came along, and we and we walked into a, the theater there at Digital Domain and sit down next to each other, and and um, they start running shots from. Um, from uh, you know the film, the, the fully realized robot. Alan's like, this is amazing. It looks fucking amazing. It's great, whatever. And then and so then he's still there when we then go into the next part of our our our, our what we're doing, which is where I guide the animators in terms of uh, recreating the Alan's performance to the CG animation. And in those days, this is before we had. Facial captures, right. actually, kind of keyframe animation. The way they did that is they basically they'd look at Alan's um, performance that we filmed, and then they'd reproduce it with the with the Sunny robot, right? Um, so what that meant is they would put it up on the big screen. One side would be a bit like our podcast right now. One side is Alan, and the other side is this is the the crude version of the robot that they're animating in middle in the middle of animation. And we'd literally look at every frame, and I, they'd show me the shot, and I'd go, "Great," or I'd go, "You know what? On frame thirteen, I think he raises his eyebrow just a tiny bit more, and he like there's a little twitch, twitch in his nose, gives a little bit of vulnerability or whatever." And we look at it over and over again, and they go, and the, the, the animation director goes, "You're right. There is a twitch in his in his left nostril for about three frames." From frame thirteen to frame sixteen, and after we're doing this for like about ten minutes, Alan Alan taps me on the shoulder and says, "I've got to, I've got to go." I go, oh, "Yeah, okay. Well, thanks for coming." He goes, "Yeah, I'm sorry, I've got to go, but I, this is like, 
this is insane. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going nuts. This is going to destroy my acting for all time. The fact that someone is sitting here, all these guys are sitting here looking at my performance like a frame at a time and studying my nostril. I just can't, I can't take it. I'm sorry I'm here, you know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I think I ruined Alan's. Alan's acting forevermore. I mean, it's true, it's true, but it's it's true. I mean, actors are you know actors you know are actors, and if you if you're telling them they're like, oh, we're going to analyze every frame of your nostril before a shot, forget it. They'll never be able to get up. Like it's just tough enough to be an actor, let alone being that kind of scrutiny. Exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so so you know, again, we we discussed. Those that dream of working in Hollywood, making these big giant monster films. What you know, I think we talked a little bit about it, but are there any other misconceptions about working on such large projects? Is it just a loss of control? Because as that budget goes up, and there's very few directors, even some of the biggest directors in Hollywood have had issues from Spielberg to Fincher. I mean, they they all have they all have well, they don't like. I mean, part of the biggest problem right now is they don't want to work with guys like us, right? Because I'm talking about most of the movies that get done. I'm not talking about Chris Nolan and people, people like that who who they've sanctioned and can spend big budgets on original ideas. Is there's such rarities now, really, really? Um, you know, the the and particularly in the sort of science fiction domain, you know, um, it, it's it's. They don't want to work with. I think they want to work with people who are. Uh, uh, um, I mean, I, I call them puppet masters, right? I call these producers people like the Marvel guys and whatever. I call them, call them puppet masters. And there's a lot of um, sort of media coverage of the fact that you know they'll bring in a director, but they won't let the director do the you know shoot the, the action scenes, for example. And I'm like, what the fuck's that all about? I mean, it's like. Because they've worked out. I mean, they've worked out their formula. When you do a Marvel movie, it's like you're uh, you're a TV director doing an episode of a, of a series, right? They've worked it all out. And it's one of the reasons I haven't done, you know, episodic TV because you walk onto the set, the actors know what they're doing. They know the characters. They've got the costumes worked out. they got they got everything worked out. Oh, and someone's going to shoot the action sequences for you, and we've already pre-visited them and worked, it all, worked out all the shots. So you go, well, you go, well, what is it that a director is actually doing? You know, the script's written. You can't change a word. So it's like, what, well, why are you there? What is it that you're actually providing in that situation as a director? Um, so I kind of go, well, you know, they're, they're right to work. The producers are right to work with people that they can plug into that machine who have a who 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 have some kind of uh, progress they want to make in their careers to allow them to do such a big, you know, uh, ego gratifying projects, um, mm-hmm. to make 150 zillion dollars so that then they can maybe go and do something that they, that they really want to do that they really love, you know? So, I mean, I think from a career point of view, that makes sense. Unfortunately, I've already been through all that. So all I really care about these days is, um, I, you know, I don't particularly, I'm not particularly driven by, by finance. I mean, I mean, I, there's really the amount of money they could offer me to do something like that, really. Um, uh, and as I say, I'm just not the right person to do that sort of stuff, you know. Um, I would rather just sit at home and write and work out 
how I am going to make my films that I really, really care about, or if there's a great script that's in the in the you know long range where I know they're going to let me do what I what I do, you know, um, I have much greater satis- job satisfaction from that sort of stuff, you know. Now, do you what advice would you give um, directors about directing actors on set? You know, because you've worked with some of you know some great actors. You know, any advice on directing and how you direct actors? That's a very hard question to answer because it really depends on where you're at in your career um, and and where and who the actors are. I mean, every actor is different. There is there is variable as every individual, you know, Um, a lot of people ask me about storyboarding and it's the same answer, which is, um, you know, I know how I work with storyboarding, but I can't give, you know, uh, new filmmakers that advice because it doesn't it's not what will work for them, you know. Um, So, yeah, it's hard to say. I think. The only nutshell thing I could offer is, is as I say, every actor is different. Every actor has different uh, uh, requirements in order to achieve what they do to get the best out of them. What I've learned over the years is try and find what it is that they need and try and, and try and give them what they need, the circumstances that they need, and only and only so much. You know, um, I I think you know the one the one. The one um, danger that maybe new directors have, or the one, or the one cautionary note I'd give them is, don't over-direct an actor. Don't feel like it's your job to sit there and specify every detail and give them line readings or whatever the whatever you might be um, inspired to do. If you're a writer, you might you might be inspired to tell want them to say the words, etc. You've you know if you're having to do that, you've picked the wrong actor because you know the the, the key really is to find the right actor for your for your role for the for the role uh, and then let them do, work their magic as as studios interfere with directors vision and the frustrations that i've expressed from that i'm sure actors experience the same thing from directors you know and so don't don't overdo it you know and 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 you know i mean i have i've had situations in the past working with less experienced actors where they come up to me and they say um one guy one chap in particular in particular, would said, um, I'm, 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 I don't. Why don't you ever say anything to me? Why don't you give me any sort of direction or whatever? And, and I go, well, it's because I like what you're doing, right? And so I don't want to fuck up what you're doing. So that's why I want you to, to, you know, if if I start saying stuff to you, it's because I'm not happy with where it's going. But I'm, but I'm really happy you're doing a great job. Just keep doing your great job, you know. Um, and that's a, a example of I cast the right person for the role. They did exactly what I was hoping they would do, and they keep doing it well. And then it's, you know, you temper certain moments, you tweak certain scenes, you give them one little bit of direction and have them look at, you know, do you know, do it in a slightly different way if you don't like it. But, but really the rest of it, there's, no, there's no trick to it. There's no it's, – it's, it's kind of just let the magic happen, you know, and, and, uh, and if it's working, don't, don't touch it, leave it, you know. What is uh, – and do you rehearse? Do you do rehearsal? Um, um, I, I do, um, yes, I do look for me, the most important part of the actor director process is what happens before you come onto the set, which is through, uh, the, about, I like to have at least three weeks with the actors, um, before we start shooting. And what we'll traditionally do is start, start with a table read, do move very quickly onto discussing character, discussing scenes, breaking down scenes, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll do that. Um, you know, half a half a day in the morning usually, and then the rest of the day, the 
wardrobe, makeup, hair, everyone else has them for, for whatever they're doing. Um, but I'm, uh, I think that's, that's the most important part for me. And that's a more, often it's not so much about um, actually acting it out as about discussing in incredible detail backstory and, and, and building those characters so that, that we come out of that process with them, the actors, each actor um, owning their character understanding that character even if it's something that i've written understanding the character better than i do you know or at least as well as i do um uh, and that's when i start to trust them i build trust you know we build mutual trust um i start to trust their opinion and their view of things and sometimes i'll realign my my view a little bit and it all comes through that process that early disc and it's more about discussion you know than anything else and if there's lines that don't gel eventually when they say to me I don't think my character would say that, which I'm very happy to hear from a from an actor, and I hear it often because I encourage that sort of collaborative spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll we'll change it, we'll change the line, and or if they can explain to me why their character wouldn't say it, you know, <laughs> I won't just do it willy nilly, but you know, and that to me is the that's the creative process, that's a collaboration where you bounce between between actor and director. The reason I like working with people like Will Smith so much and and Nicolas Cage also is that. They're fully storytellers. They're not just acting their their character. They are they they're aware that they are integral to telling your story or telling the story, and and that's why I, I, I love both of those guys so much because they really bring that quality to their to their work, you know. And I'm sure with other directors as well. We, and, you, and and you worked on the film obviously called The Knowing with Nick uh, with Nick Cage. Um, how is it? to work with Nicholas because he has obviously become almost a cultural icon in the, the performances that he puts out sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is a very, I mean, I absolutely love I mean, wild at heart. And I mean, so many of the, I mean, raising Arizona, all these amazing performances over the years. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. How is it to work with? Like he seems like, I mean, I'm sure it's not, but I seem, I see, I think he's like a lightning in a bottle. And you're just kind of trying to aim and direct him in a, in a proper way. I describe him as the Ferrari of actors, where <laughs> actors have, you know, four gears. He's got six, you know, and, and he can go go there if you need him to. You know, speaking of being brave, I mean, this is the thing about Nick and why he is such a uh, iconic guy. You know. Um, He's incredibly brave, you know, and and to him, yeah. paramount to 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 the film is a great story, you know, and it's not about him looking a certain way or acting in a certain way so that the audience like him or or, or any of those those considerations that big movie star people make, you know. Um, he will go where the story dictates, and he'll go way into where the story the story dictates, you know. I say he's completely brave um and fearless with with what he's doing and that's a pretty much a unique thing uh in with actors of his stature you know um so he's a wonderful combination of old-fashioned character actor with movie star feel you know um they don't make him like nick anymore and um that's why he's a he's a he's great to, to work with and on top of that i mean he's a you know, Nick as a as a guy is a, he's a surrealist. You know, he has a really brilliant mind. He's uh, he's really funny, and he's to- 
totally aware of all this stuff that everyone's kind of been going on about with his with his um, with his over the top crazy performances. But he's trying to push the envelope into different areas to keep himself fresh, you know. And it's a, kind of exactly what I do with films, you know. Like after Dark City, I made um, this thing, Garage Days, this low budget um, Aussie comedy, romantic comedy. And go figure, the guy who made The Crow and Dark City would make a romantic comedy, you know. Um, and I did that for a very specific reason because. I, I want to keep exploring and pushing into new areas, and I don't want—I don't want to feel secure. I know how to do this. I, I want to feel nervous and like you know excited about the experimenting and coming up with new stuff. And that's very much the way Nick approaches his performances. He's he's a he's a very brave explorer of new new frontiers, you know. So it's about it's about the best thing I could say about any actor, really, that I've, that I've worked with. You know? Now, what do you wish someone would have told you when you started out in the business that you didn't know now or that you didn't know when you started? Don't go there. <laughs> no, no. no. I, I, um, run away. Yeah. What did you do? Get a real yeah, job. Yeah, run away. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, well, as we pointed out, that's impossible to say to any filmmaker and it's impossible to say to any, certainly any young filmmaker. Um, because when we're young, we, we don't even believe we're going to die. You know, we're, we're <laughs> immortals, right? right. Um, it's, it's, you know, you know, look, I, it's one of the things I just don't know that you, you can ever really, and as I say, you're constantly learning. So you never really completely work it out. I don't think anyone does. Um, and you've got to kind of go through it to, to go, oh, okay, now I understand. Now I understand why some of those other filmmakers, experienced filmmakers said what they did. You know, um, I try not to um, discourage people because that's the worst thing you can do. You know, um, I think it's really important that we retain, um, you know, uh, ex ex excitement for for this this you know this craft this this um some thing that we do making movies. And you know, my excitement came from, as I say, the big screen, um, the big sound, and that immersive social experience of going to movies and it's incredibly depressing that we're looking at yeah. the sort of maybe looking at the end of that. Um, and uh, it's something that I try not to think about too much, you know, because it just does spiral me into a utter, utter depression. Um, but um, look, all I can all, you know, I, I'm not answering your question just because I, I don't know that I can. Um, I think all you can, all you can do is, um, Um, say, uh, you know, be true to your own self, you know, be true, be true to your own originality, right? Um, tell a story that you feel really, really passionate about and stick to that like crazy. Don't let anyone talk you out of it, out of, if you want to make a particular, particular film, particular story, don't let anyone talk you out of it. Just do it because the fact is everyone's going to try and talk you out of it. You're going to get knocked back by every single person. I mean, look at Star Wars as a classic example. Oh, of that. my God. Every studio knocked knocked George Lucas back, and he finally managed to convince one last person to make the film. So that's how fucking wrong these people are. And they continue – and they're, today they're more wrong than ever before. They have no idea – they wouldn't have an idea of a good script if it fell over on them, you know, if they fell over, fell over it. You, you've got to just stay true to what you believe as an individual – is something 
a story that you are about telling, you know. Um, I've got this thing called a new country that I'm trying to make. I've been trying to finance it now for a couple of years. And, you know, it's, it's, it's again, a, it's a, a very bold uh, science fiction piece, um, a genre-bashing, blending thing that I've not seen anyone do before, and that's why I'm excited about making it, you know. Um, and I just, you know, I have to convince others of that, which is the eternal struggle that film filmmakers have, you know. So that's the thing is like you don't, you know, you know, you got to be, you got to be thick-skinned, and you got to be tough, and you got to just, you know, you got to have a, a real belief in your own vision. You know, that's the most important thing. And again, if, if that would 175 million work for that movie, I mean, if it does, we'll put the word out. Let's see if we can. Yeah, that, I mean, I, see if we get that crowdfunded I, uh, for you. <laughs> I do that 100 for 150. 100 okay, 150. you're gonna bring it down. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, can you tell me about <laughs> tell me about the Heretic Foundation? Um, it's a studio that I've built in Sydney, um, which is a it's ostensibly a virtual production studio, and but it's a it's basically an umbrella for all aspects of of the production. So we. We we edit we we do all the all the VFX we shoot it uh, with you know, using Unreal Engine and um, and uh, um, it's basically a, a a way to to make an entire film you know um, uh, it also brings down the logistics and the and the budget exponentially you have uh, you I can work with small crews but I can put them into environments and situations that are that are I don't reduce the scope of that. The scope is bigger than ever before. So, for example, we, we've done this little short film, film, 20 minute film, which we're finishing up, which we're hoping will be released in January of next year, which is rapidly approaching. Uh, there's a trailer for it. It's called Mask of Evil Apparition. There's a trailer on YouTube at the moment. Um, and it's uh, it's all been done virtually. And people are saying it looks like Dark City and the and, and there's a reason for that because um, it's kind of partly intentional. Um, I think a lot of it is as is as uh, the imagery is as intricate as Dark City, but Dark City we built real sets, um, and th- with this we're we're creating computer generated sets. Um, but I think you know vi- visually it looks to my eye it looks very very similar. So you know, and it's a fraction of the budget that we spent on on. It's, on so Dark this City. is the so same. This is the my, same uh, technology that Mandalorian's using. It's the same technology. It's our, it's our Aussie stripped down indie version because obviously Mandalorian has all all the big pockets and the big bucks behind it. We we have basically what's in my bank account behind it, which is not 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 very much these days. I can tell you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we've we've rebuilt that kind of concept, but in a indie style, you know. And that was kind of the intention when we went into this. Is I went, you know what this. But this, if you get this, we sh- you know, this, fil- this short film we shot, it's a 20-minute film. We shot it in, in a week, right? Now, I couldn't shoot 20 minutes of film in less than a month on the big budgets, you know, or, yeah, probably about a month, you know, um, just because this, you know, it's, it's an ex- exponential process. The more crew you have, the more support crew you need, the longer it takes to do everything, Right. Um, so, so in this one, I was shooting as quickly as I would would have shot on a short film or a, in film school. You know, we had great fun doing it. We worked we worked reasonable hours. You know, 
almost nine to five type hours. Um, we weren't working a lot of overtime, and we got 20 minutes of footage done. Um, a very, I think, very good good footage. Um, you know, there's one sequence where we have cloned a, a, a guy, um, an actor, you know, a hundred times. He plays a hundred versions of himself in the one scene. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Which which we shot in, you know, we shot the shot whole scene in three hours, you know. We did a similar scene like that in Gods of Egypt with a character and the scene, one of the scenes sadly didn't even make it into the finished film. We were shooting for, for you know, five days just on that one scene, you know. Jesus. Um, so that shows you how much faster you can work with this with this, this technology, you know. You can shoot one environment in the morning, have lunch and go, okay, now we're going to the mountaintop and press a button on the computer and suddenly you're in another location. You don't have to drive the unit across town, you know. So this is the way forward. This means that we can cre- we can compete as an indie as indie filmmakers. We can make films of a very high visual standard, <clears throat> compete with the big the big boys, you know. Um, uh, but do it, you know, and do it at a at a budget, you know. And this all works in with you know streaming and all everything else to sort of like reclaim our 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 industry back reclaim our 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 craft our art back um so that we can do it you know i've always been jealous for all my career of writers and painters and composers yes can wake up one morning go down to the piano in their lounge room and knock out a song you know Mm -hmm. or or write write the next chapter of their book or whatever and i'm like why can't we as artists be like those guys well because other people have to anoint us and give us the money to do it well I think Heretic Foundation, my studio, is a is a small cog in in turning that around. You know, as the technology has been, you know, as as what you're doing doing is um, all it's all part of the same puzzle um, that you know the technology, for example, is is allowing us to shoot films again. We can, if I want to make a film in the morning, I can make it. It's not going to be a, a Marvel superhero movie, but it's going to be it's going to be you know. Cr- it's going to be a film, a film, you know. Um, so, so that to me is the exciting world that we're in right now. And if we can, if we can break that one, that one extra little piece of the puzzle of how to get, how to monetize the stuff effectively, the content effectively, get it out to the to the audience, um, then to me, to me, it's a, a brave world that I that I certainly want to be a part of. That's for sure. Now uh, and and you also have a, a YouTube channel called Mystery Clock Cinema, which is so much fun, and I recommend everybody yeah. going to that channel. Uh, it only doesn't only have your short films, but it also has um, some master classes by you. Um, I love that video. What the bad habits that film school taught me, uh, <laughs> things like that. Uh, you, you know, you, you know, a lot of directors of your statue don't don't give back, don't want to help filmmakers. Don't, I mean, not that they don't want to, but they just don't want, they, they just, not, you know, they don't do as much. Um, and I'm so glad that someone with your experience and your artistic design and, and, and your abilities are making an effort to give back to the filmmaking community. Uh, and I just love that you're doing that. How did the mystery clock cinema come about and why did you start it? Um, well, Mystery Clock is my production company that's, that's made the, some of the some of the um, and you know I just I started looking at stuff on YouTube and going you know what I should I could do this stuff you know and it's 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 great fun I mean 
there's also an there's an there's a diabolical agenda behind it, of course, which is I'm trying to, as you're doing in a much more successful way than I, <laughs> I'm doing it at a much level, but I'm trying to realign things into that new world that I was talking, brave new world that I was talking about, and I feel like it's important for people to hear people like me who've come out of the old world and now embracing this new way of doing stuff. Um, I think that hopefully is an inspiring thing and thing, and hopefully that can um, realign a lot of new talent that is going to help build this new world, you know. So I'm, I'm still doing it for my own selfish reasons, really. Um, um, but also, I'm, you know, I, look, I, I, like, I like, I really enjoy um, talking to people. I've done a lot of, you know, live, live masterclasses before them before we weren't allowed to congregate in groups um, this year. But up until that point, I was doing a lot of live ones and I going to film school and teaching there and stuff. And I just really enjoy it. I love the energy that, that young filmmakers um, bring to this. And often they end up teaching you more than you teach them. You know, they, mm -hmm. if, if only just to reacquaint yourself with the, the enthusiasm and the excitement oh. and the energy that – that filmmakers can uh, can bring to to this to this craft, you know. I mean, I remember I remember my first day in film school. I still remember it to this day when they were touring around the studios and the the, the back lot and stuff yeah. like that where I went. And I just remember that enthusiasm that I could just do anything, and it, there was no bounds. And that that's something that obviously the business starts to squash little by little. Um, and it's about you trying to fight your way back out of that to be able to still hold that's on right. hold on to that flame. But, um, yeah. you know, now both you and I are covered in shrapnel um, <laughs> from the years of being in the business. Obviously, you no, have I'm still pulling it out. Oh, no, you've got <laughs> much, much more shrapnel than I do, sir. But yeah. um, but inside you, the key is to hold on to that flame and to hold on to that love of what yeah. why you started this journey, this insane. Yeah business if you you know it's just an insane it's insanity but uh but i'm so glad that you, you you're doing that as well and i'm going to just ask you a few questions i ask all my guests um what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to get into the business today um i think as i said before do do your own thing you know and stick to, stick to that thing you know what you love find those stories that you you know those what kind of movie do you want to tell and, 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 and stay true to that, you know, and, and really try and focus on that and don't be sort of sidetracked into, into other areas. I, I have this pet peeve about, uh, about people who film young filmmakers who try and do proof of concept type movies to get a gig with, um, you know, with a superhero franchise, you know, and I, and I feel like that's really limiting Right. I mean, look, there are some people that that's all they want to do, then good, best of luck to them. But uh, all you want to do, then maybe you're better off servicing your own original vision and showing people what it, what it is that you can, that you can bring to even to, even to get a franchise movie, you know. Um, I think those producers will surely appreciate that much more than seeing uh, seeing someone cloning something that they do and doing it for, you know, on a much lower budget and not doing it as well. You know, surely that would be a more, you know, so so make sure you, you put your resources into something you can do well and pull off well rather than something you, that's going to be half-hearted because if anything, that's going to just show people that maybe you can't do something <laughs> that you 
trying to show them that you can do. Um, but the most important thing is 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 staying true to your own vision. You know, I feel like as a as a director, uh, I mean, I you know, I think writing. Writer directors, great writer directors are rare, and and even though um, uh, they may have one success, maybe they they won't continue to have successes. Um, so you don't always have to be a writer as a as a filmmaker. You don't have to be an or, uh, a writer director to be an auteur filmmaker. Um, but I feel, but I feel like to, you know to be an auteur filmmaker, to be someone who has a vision, who has a style, who has something unique that they're trying to bring that that's what it means to me you know it doesn't mean that you try and do everyone's job on the set uh because there's going particularly if you're you're new you you need to listen to other people's opinion um you need to value other people's opinions particularly if they're more experienced than you but i think try and find what it is that makes you new makes you fresh makes you original and unique you know and try and stick to that while people are telling you that that sucks you know Right. Um, I think that's really important. And w- what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Um, oh God, life! I'm not going to go into that. Um, <laughs> let's stick to the film. Stick to the film business. Um, I think I touched upon it early on, which is storyboarding. Which is, um, it took me a long time to uh, when I f- first started. I would do very elaborate storyboards, shot shot uh, descriptions, or actually you know, drawings of um, every shot I wanted in a, in a scene. And often I'd written the script as well. So I was very specific with where I wanted the actors to stand and what I went, what line I wanted them to turn around on and on and all that sort of stuff. Cause I thought that's what it, that's what being a director was, you know, um, sort of controlling the entire process. Um, and, you know, I'd read a lot about the, my heroes like Kubrick and, and a lot of it's mythology too, because <laughs> Kubrick is a far, uh, far better director, director than um, some of this mythology might allude to, which is, you know, he does 150 takes, someone walking down a, down a corridor or whatever, you know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. If he does that, he's doing it for a reason, um, uh, which hasn't been properly explained, but you know, and and also Hitchcock, which you know, there's mythology about Hitchcock, which said, which is another filmmaker that I re- that I really admired, um, where where he said once I've you know once I've storyboarded the movie, written the script, storyboarded the movie, the movie's done. Then I just get the actors to do, you know, the yeah. I don't even look through the camera. So, I don't even look through the yeah, camera. Yeah, yeah. Which is just it's a again it's a complete myth, right? Um, so 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 I but I listened to those myths. It's and I thought that's what you did. It's, Every single nuance, every detail. So I'd say to the actor, "Okay, now here, we're ready. You know, we're ready to rehearse the scene. Now you stand here on this spot mark that I've marked out, which works on my twenty-four mil lens, and then you stand down there and you tell him that you love him. You know, and they go, but, but I, I'm too, too far away to tell him that I love him. Seems really odd. And I go, never mind, just do it. It'll work out. It'll be fine. You know. So there I am, completely throwing away what is instinctively." something important for the actor, for the character, and overriding them with my authoritarian rule, right? Mm-hmm. Which, and that's not what a, what a director should do, absolutely not. You know, So it took me a while to learn that you need to be flexible, particularly when you're doing scenes with actors and not just someone running down the street being chased by a dog or whatever. Um, you need to give them the flexibility to create this 
this scene for you. And it's at the end of the day, you you can't. You, know, you might have a view about how you want to shoot it, but you've got to learn to let certain things go in the shoot, in the heat of the moment, right? And that's something that took me a long time to understand. That kind of comes through experience. And last question, sir. What are three of your favorite films of all time? Um, um, well, 2001 still is. It has been for, for since I, probably since I saw it. I don't know. Um, but it, because it is, as I say, the, 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 the biggest, most famous experimental movie of all time. And yes. the fact that it – Found an audience at the time is mind-boggling to me that in fact had any had any level of success. There was um, there there was some to the genius. yeah, and there was also some uh, drug use involved with that. That's what actually made it so it popular. A, it, it probably hit the zeitgeist well in that right. respect. You know? Yes, it was perfect. Um, and that, that, and I, I believe that only came in the the second because they they pulled the film I think at some right. point correct because it was not doing well and then they re-released it again as the ultimate trip right. And that they, they, and they, they did they it that literally, you know? and they figured so, it out after. And they, because I'm a Kubrick fanatic, so I've I've done so much yeah. research on Kubrick. Is after the fact, they started he- seeing that the hippies were really loving it, and that's when they're like, "Wait a minute, yeah. let's remarket this as a trip." And boom, it was a hit. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we found our audience. Hallelujah, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's that, and and uh, and then uh, Stalker is my other one that I've that I've passionately loved since I saw that film. And I saw that film actually in film school. Um, uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker, uh, because it showed me again, uh, and it's similar to 2001 in many ways, but it's it showed me how to tell a more linear story, and and I do believe it is more, well, it's more linear than 2001. Um, but it and it told me how to tell that story through. It taught me how to tell that story through visual poetry, you know, which I think is what it what it is, you know, um, you know, and and I mean both of those films. What I think is why they they remain my favourite films. And I like you know I like normal movies too. So you know don't worry, I do like a good grounded, well told normal story. Um, but but I I, lo- I love those movies because they do stuff stuff only movies do right. You can't possibly tell the – you can't not, – not just tell the story, but you can't express the experience in any other medium other than in cinema, right, Right. with those two movies. And that's why I love them both so much. And now I'm struggling as I, as I speak to think of a third, third one that compares. But <coughs> – excuse me. I'll throw The Exorcist in, which is oh. <clears throat> um, another eternal favourite of mine. Um because it, it again, it gave me an experience that no other film has ever been able to mm-hmm. replicate. Such a unique uh, experience, um, incredibly driven, powerful, terrifying story that um, with with incredible simplicity. I mean, that's the amazing thing about that film is it's honestly it's the simplest narrative and it's the simplest amount of elements you could possibly use in a movie right. and so many people have tried to replicate again that movie over the years and and um with various levels of success but that one really was a again like a, a game changer in movies so there'd be, there'd be many there have been many i could i could list and so of movies. one movie i get one movie that just comes to mind when i think of you i think he must like that and i, I please tell me if i'm wrong blade runner Oh, I love Blade Runner. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Blade just... Runner. I was a kid when I saw Blade Runner, and um, it was um, 
at the time, it was the I, I thought it was the most beautiful film I've oh, ever seen visually. So stunning. Uh, um, and you know, compromised of course because it was the the bored Harrison Ford voiceover at the beginning where you go. <laughs> Why does that guy sound so bored? You know, it's like he's in this amazing world, and he just sounds like he's bored out of his. Yeah, uh, you know, and we're down here, and there's replicants, and blah blah blah. <laughs> I mean, I remember. But, I remember. Uh, yeah, that's obviously look. When and I moved- Alien, both of those two oh, movies um, yeah. were incredibly inspiring to me. Alien was another one. Alien, maybe even more so than than Blade Runner for me, because. The the chest burster in Alien again was one of those moments in cinema that will never be reproduced. Um, the impact that that thing had um, at the time was just it just you know the audience were just like I remember the palpable experience oh. of being in that in that in that in that screening you know sure um, stuff like that you know and it's and it's stuff that you can't you can't I don't think we'll ever re- reproduce it. That's like it'd be like Seeing Psycho, which is another favourite film of mine, when it first was released in the theatres, which I'm too, yeah. too, I'm not right. old enough to have seen, but I cannot imagine because I remember seeing it on TV again as a kid and going, "Wow, hang on a second, second, they've killed the girl who was supposed to be the hero of the film." It's like, <laughs> who am I? Who am I following? I'm completely lost in this film. I can't imagine that the the impact that would have that bold narrative decision would have had in a theater on the, on the first release, it would have been mind boggling, you know? And so stuff like that, I just don't think, I think a lot of filmmakers, we, we, we're trying to, we keep reaching for those moments. I mean, I reach for that moment at the end of dark city for that incredible, like mind blowing moment when you realize the entire story is, um, not what you were thinking It's some, something actually different, you know? Um, and, you know, I was riffing off um, actually another movie that I love is the original Planet of the Apes where, mm-hmm. you know, Chuck Heston ends up on the beach and you see the Statue of Liberty and you go, which I think has gone beyond being a, 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 um, a sort of a, a, a um, cultural phenomenon. <laughs> a, a, well, when you, no, when you give something away in a movie. What, what is that? Oh, it's, um, away, uh, yeah, the, the, the reveal, the um the secret yeah like yeah. in the sixth six sense or psycho or like yeah yeah oh, what, yeah a, the a, ending you the twist ending the anyway, twist ending the i'm twist not ending. spoiling it's a spoiler right I'm not, yeah i'm not sorry yeah sorry spoiler guys sure. all those movies you haven't seen them stop listening to this yeah, podcast pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure everyone's aware of this that's that particular spoiler you know maybe not as many people are aware of the spoiler that i could give away in dark city um but um but yeah that was a again a, one of those moments where it's like you know wow this is not another planet this this is actually our planet you know the future um so stuff like that and i I just don't know that you can do that i mean sixth sense was probably one of the last of them that where people were talking about it and you know that a film had achieved some some oh god yeah incredible thing you know but it's like i don't know that people you just can't I mean, can you do it anymore? I mean, well, I mean, sure. I, I remember, like, ima- I can only imagine being in the theater to see Star Wars, like, or Jaws. Yeah, when well, the- I, I was, I actually, that's another one that I, that I, I um, I, look, I'm a big fan of the original trilogy, and I find it hard to wax, wax lyrical about Star Wars on that level, just because I think it's, well, I won't say, I, I don't like saying negative things about things. No, mm-hmm. I will. I just think it's a bit of a disaster these days. Um, but um. 
but yeah, I was there. I was in the original screening of the first Star Wars. I think oh, I was. God, that must have been amazing. Fourteen. I think oh, I was fourteen. I mean, your mind must have been blown. Uh, your mind must have been blown. It, it was, you know. But look, the thing is, for me, um, at the time, I was big into science fiction already because, as we've said, two thousand one. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And um, I was looking at, you know, I would. There were certain magazines like this, this magazine called Starlog at the mm-hmm. time. And, yeah, of course. And, and a bunch of other magazines that uh, I would collect voraciously, and I would seek out any information on films like Star Wars that were coming that were coming up. You know, in those days, apart from a trailer, it was really hard to find any detail of films. You know, it wasn't the internet world that we now live in. So, I I was. I was tracking that film diligently up until the moment it came out. So it was already a really exciting and, – and also movies came out – they came out in the States first. So we already knew that it was a, it was a cultural ex- phenomenon already. It had been out a few weeks and people were lining up to see it. So there were high expectations when me and a bunch of other kids, we, uh, we call it wagging. We, we got out of school. We pretended we were sick, and we all went down. <laughs> the Star Wars flu. Yeah, the Star Wars flu. Yeah. yeah, and it was they, they didn't do like midnight screening and stuff in those days. It was we were there for the first first morning or something like that. First session Friday eleven eleven o'clock Friday morning, and we went. Um, we saw the movie. and We went straight back in on the next the next session and saw it again. You know, of course, because it was just such a such an experience. You know, the the, um, the last the last like time I other millions, millions of people. Like the last the last movie that I remember that happening to was probably uh, Pulp Fiction. Like when I saw Pulp Fiction right. in the theater, I remember f- literally falling out of my chair with some of the dialogue. It was just like one of those events. You're just like, holy, because there was nothing like Pulp Fiction before Pulp Fiction. Like there was. Yeah. It was it was one of those groundbreaking films. Listen, we could keep geeking out about film for at least another four hours, but I will respect your time. Uh, thank you, um, Alex, so so much for being on the show. It's been an honor talking to you, and and thank you for sharing your knowledge and uh, with the tribe. And I, I truly truly appreciate everything you do. And I'm going to do my darndest to get you the 150 million, my friend. <laughs> thank you very much, Alex. Much appreciated, and, lo- and lovely talking to you as well. It's it's been it's been great fun. So keep up the good work. Thank you, my friend. I can't thank Alex enough for coming on the show, dropping not only his knowledge bombs, but his inspiration as well. Thank you so, so much, Alex. If you want to check out anything that we spoke about in this episode, including links to Alex's film studio in Australia, his YouTube channel, and ways to watch his films, please head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 257. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 